trigger warning, this episode contains details of somewhat graphic imagery. I also want to make a correction ahead of time. In the first part of the episode when I am discussing the Lumbee tribe and their history, there is one point where I say Croatoan as their very first given name. I want to make a correction ahead of time. It is actually Croatan. Welcome to Little Known Crime. I'm Chandra Mel. Archaeological research shows that the Indians have inhabited the modern-day Lumbee tribal lands since 12,000 BC. Some ancestors have been in southeastern North Carolina from the beginning, while others migrated over time from surrounding areas. After colonization and the wars and diseases that were brought with it, the native peoples centered on the Lumbee River, which offered a safer place. The indigenous people that called this area home were not of a common heritage, however. They came from many different tribes, but in the instances of the colonization and ever-encroaching Europeans, they had to drop their unique languages, tribal identities, and cultures to survive together. Through the years of battling with government for recognition and equal rights, the indigenous peoples of this area recognized the need for a name, a name that covered their newly mixed heritage of ancient tribes. The names evolved four times in under 100 years. The Croatoan, 1885 legislation sponsored by Hamilton Macmillan, who knowing that they were called Hatteras, still named them incorrectly. This did, however, help to grant the native peoples some of what they were fighting for at the time. At that time, segregated schools had sprung up across the nation, yet Indians saw no schools for their race. Upon granting a federally recognized name, they were able to achieve schools for their children. 1911 saw the name changed to Indians of Robeson County and again to Cherokee Indians of Robeson County in 1913. It was in 1953 that the tribe adopted the name Lumbee. This was their first name to be chosen by themselves that was recognized by government. The name fit them for the land they now call home and the rich diversity of the cultures that came together for survival. It was three years after they adopted their tribal name that the government officially recognized it. In 1888, a new battle began that the Lumbee fight to this day. Though they are recognized, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs declined to recognize them as an official tribe. Therefore, they receive no benefits due to them. They fought for funding for their schools and received no assistance. In 1911, the supervisor of Indian schools, Charles Pierce, stated the following, and I quote, At the present time, it is the avowed policy of the federal government to require the states having an Indian population to assume the burden and responsibility of their education, end quote. This is pointing to the reluctance of state and federal levels 
to offer funding to Indian schools. Pierce went on to list other tribes in the area that would become a so-called burden if the Lumbee were granted recognition. It should be noted that since then, all of these tribes, except for the Lumbee tribe, have been granted federal recognition. In 1956, the Lumbee received partial recognition. This means that they are recognized as an Indian tribe, but denied federal benefits offered to other tribes. 1958 brought on another problem, one all too familiar to the African Americans of the land. The KKK set its sights on the Indians. The Grand Wizard of the KKK, James Cole, announced a planned rally in the area. He wanted to, quote, put the Indians in their place. Funny, the ignorance of hate. The man who designates his race, culture, religion, or beliefs as higher than his neighbor is truly the one that needs to be put in his place, in my opinion. We come here, Europeans, and take and take. We take forcefully. We take violently. And what we don't take, we destroy so that those who are victimized by us cannot survive, protect themselves, or fight back. And all the while, we are acting as though we are doing this in the name of a religion or a bettering of the people we are dehumanizing. We act as though the people who live a life different than ours or in a different part of the world than ours are savages. The man who destroys for profit is more a savage than the man who lives off the land. Don't get me wrong. I understand that people everywhere in the world and throughout history have done atrocious things to each other. That part cannot be ignored. You can look at any historical document, nobody, anywhere is completely innocent. Or I should say no group of people is completely innocent in history. Everyone has done some wrong, right? But this is not the focus. The focus is on a continent of people who were treated all as one and pushed out, cornered, and or murdered. And we act as though we have the right. We act as though we are doing them good or not. I'm sure that many cases were of all-out indifference to the people being persecuted. I'm sure there are plenty of people who did not care, who did not view them as humans. In fact, I know that can be definitely argued um, in a lot of situations or for the history itself. Now, leading up to the rally, there were cases of burning crosses on the lawns of Indian people living in white neighborhoods. And even in the case of a woman who was indigenous, who was in a relationship with a white man, the Lumbee people were outraged and they were going to stand their ground. Cole did not have the numbers he expected, with only about 50 people showing up to his rally. On the other hand, the Lumbee people showed up in the hundreds. I don't know the exact details, but they shot out a light and fired guns, though there are no reported injuries. Cole, among others, ran away, leaving his wife behind. In her escape, she drove her car into a ditch. A Lumbee man, Alfred Oxendine, helped her by taking her to safety in another county. Cole was convicted of inciting a riot and was sentenced to 18 to 24 months in prison. Presiding judge, Lacey Maynard, was a Lumbee tribal member. If you want to learn more about the Lumbee tribe, which I highly recommend, go to the site. They have further historical information, news, and so much more. All of this information that I have gathered and just told you has come from LumbeeTribe.com. I will include the link in the show notes. Out of respect, I will not be including a picture of their official seal. It is stated directly on their website that the seal should not be used unless granted signed documented permission to do so. If you want to see the seal, check it out on their website. So this is just a small portion of the background of the Lumbee people. 
I also want to note that the Lumbee come from Alaconquin, Iroquoian, possibly Siouan language families. This is a history of many tribes coming together, putting aside any history of land disputes or possible rivalries, all in the name of survival. If you are non-indigenous or come from a background that does not have this history, try to imagine. Try to imagine the fear in isolation. Your land is no longer your own. Your freedom is no longer your own. I even wonder if freedom was much of a concept before this. Or, I suppose I should say, I wonder what freedom meant to the indigenous people of this land before they had this freedom stripped from them. Europeans traveled to another land, or migrated, heavily for the idea of seeking religious freedom and safety. And they were so ignorant to not see that they were exactly what they were running from. I understand that I'm not going to be politically correct in everything I say, so let me reiterate that I am speculating. I could also be getting some facts wrong, but it still ended up with mass incarceration, forced migration, and annihilation of indigenous people. I've heard many people complain about some of the benefits offered to tribal members in our country. I have heard the phrase handout mentioned, but it's not a handout, is it? When you are not offered equal treatment in society, when your history is that with which our ancestors have provided the indigenous people of this land, everyone should pay their debts. And the debt that the government, the law, and the ancestors of this United States owes the indigenous population is priceless. I want to take a quick break to tell you about a product I've tried out. Now, I don't know about you, but I am an avid coffee drinker, and being from the Pacific Northwest, I'm always looking for the highest quality coffee. I came across this company on Instagram and decided to try it out. Native Ground Coffee is a North American-owned coffee company from the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community in Arizona. I ordered their Morning Warrior Roast, which is a light roast, and not only did it get to me within the same week that I ordered it, but they also sent this adorable sticker for their brand and a stock card with a nice little note written specifically to me, which that is just a beautiful touch to your customers. So I also want to touch on the fact that I'm used to drinking bitter coffee. I drink my coffee black. And so because of that, it's very common for coffee to be bitter. But with their morning roast, it is so smooth. It is not at all bitter. So go ahead and check out Native Ground Coffee at their Instagram at Native Ground Coffee or go to nativegroundcoffee.com. You can read all about them, their culture, their history. You can even order tea or merch. Please support our Native American companies. NativeGroundCoffee.com. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This episode includes details that could create graphic imagery. On April 18th, 2017, in Robeson County, North Carolina, the body of 32-year-old Christina Bennett, who also went by Kristen, was found nude, covered in a blanket, and stuffed into a TV cabinet in an abandoned house. An odor then brought the first responder's attention to a second body nearby. Rhonda Jones, who was 36 years old, was found unclothed, face first in a trash can outside a house on East 5th Street. Her glasses were missing along with the rest of her clothes, and she had no visible wounds. Shelia Price, Rhonda's mother, 
was 400 miles away visiting her aunt and uncle at the time the bodies were found. In an interview in 2018 with Inside Edition, she says that she received a call from a friend of Rhonda's asking the last time she had seen her. It had been two weeks. The friend then informed her of the two bodies found that morning. Shelia got off the phone, looked to her aunt and uncle, and told them that she knew her daughter was gone. In the aftermath of the body's discoveries, CBS North Carolina news reporter Nate Rogers recalls being dispatched to the location and speaking with a lot of people in the town. On his way down, however, he was warned that this was a community strife with crime, drugs, and sex work. What I got from what he was describing and how he was describing it, he felt that the, quote, forewarning was disrespectful and was intending to taint his coverage of the community and the crimes. He definitely seemed to have quite a bit of empathy in the way that he was speaking. He mentioned seeing a woman walk up to the vicinity and looking rather shaken up. So he approached her and spoke with her on live coverage. Megan Oxendine, wearing a Chicago Bulls sweater and a black purse-like backpack, stood in on the interview looking distressed and concerned. She looked off across the street saying, quote, I don't understand how somebody could do somebody's child, mother, niece like that. Just weeks later, on June 3rd, 2017, 28-year-old Megan was found dead, no more than 500 feet or two and a half blocks from the first two victims. And I do have an image that I will be including in my Instagram and Facebook posts showing a map with the vicinity of where the three bodies were found. She was behind a house, nude, with her blouse found underneath her body. Megan's family, three sisters and her mother, were interviewed in the 2018 Inside Edition talking about her. They all sat in a row reminiscing about her. Her mother, Shelia Oxendine, went on to say that Megan called her not five minutes after the news first mentioned the discovery of the first two bodies. Megan had hung around with Rhonda a few times. Then she interviews with the news and goes missing a few weeks later. She was targeted. Her sisters also believe that there was a chance of retaliation. The family found out about Megan's death from social media posts reading, Rest in peace, Megan. This is something that should always be avoided. All of these people live in the city of Lumberton. I see no reason that the family would not have been informed before the public. Kristen Bennett was the only one of the three women who was not part of the Lumbee tribe, though her partner, the father of her child, and several of her friends were, so she was associated with it. She had just won a custody battle and was days away from picking up her daughter. Rhonda Jones had five kids and one grandkid and was in the process of a custody battle to get her kids back. Her mother keeps a garden of flowers and several crosses in her yard, changing the decor by the season. When speaking with Megan's family, her three sisters, Taylor, Sierra, and Kalia Oxendine, described her as a good girl, really smart and brave, that she could be at her lowest point and still help someone else before helping herself, that she would give you the shirt off her back. She is survived by her daughter, who at the time of the interview in 2018, Shelia Oxendine stated that she does not yet understand the finality of her death and calls out for her mom in her sleep. On April 18th, 2018, on the first anniversary of the discovery of Kristen Bennett and Rhonda Jones, the community gathered at Luther J. Britt Jr. Memorial Park, a memorial of the victims. Family and friends got together to discuss the memory of the victims while the kids played on in the background. A pastor spoke about the immensity of the loss, and everyone gathered in a circle 
while they played a song for the victims. There were many people wearing shirts with hashtag justice for Rhonda and pictures of the deceased women. Back in June of 2017, the community pressured the police, who finally asked for the FBI's assistance. In January of 2018, the FBI announced a $30,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest in the case. Besides that, and a BAU profile on what they believe the killer would be like, they give no information on the case to this day. Here's the profile, and I quote, We believe that this offender may have left the community after this happened. If they didn't leave the community, their behavior probably changed. They may have started drinking. They may have quit their job. Maybe inconsistent behavior. They may have told someone that they did it, and it was brushed aside. Sometimes, all it takes is for the community to come forward with that small little bit of information that matches something else that we have, that just kind of completes the puzzle. And I think that is something that we really need from the community right now, is that little bit of information to match up with the evidence we have, back to this time frame, and go, you know what, I didn't come forward then, but maybe I should come forward now, end quote. Now, are they still asking questions, is what I'm wondering. Is the police department asking questions, walking around, asking people, is the FBI asking people questions. In 2018, Shelia Price is saying that they still have not received a death certificate, a cause of death, or even a police report. Because of the decomposition of the bodies, it took over a year to get results on autopsies, and all three deaths were listed as undetermined. This upsets the families because it also calls into question whether it would even be a homicide. Price believes that there is police bias and victim blaming, and many other family members of the victims state that they feel unheard and that nothing is being done. Days after the bodies were found, police chief released the police chief released a public statement that the women were known drug users and that the area is known for sex work. Even if the drugs had something to do with the deaths, they weren't going to crawl naked into a trash can, a TV cabinet, or the bushes, especially all three being found that way. It seems to me, upon speculation, like a very lazy thing to say, offering reason for people to lose compassion for these women. Almost like it makes it easier, you not having solved the crime. Shelia Price has never stopped advocating for her daughter and has even begun investigating other missing and murdered indigenous people in the area. She carries a notebook with over 200 names in it. In 2019, she started the Facebook group Shatter the Silence which is a public space for representing missing and murdered indigenous people in the area. The following are quotes from Price, and I quote, It ain't right. Christmas ain't the same. I don't even celebrate Easter no more. I don't understand none of this. I don't understand how somebody can throw her in the trash can. Yes, she had a drug problem, but it didn't make her an evil or mean person. She didn't deserve to lay over there in a trash can for days. For all three deaths to come back undetermined, I mean, you can't find something on these three bodies? How can you say three girls just get naked and died in a five-week period all in the same area? It wasn't an overdose. They weren't shot. They weren't stabbed. I'm so mad and angry and tired. This ain't my job. Ain't no one paying me to be a private investigator. But we ain't gonna stop. How many other families are not getting the help they deserve? End quote. Sherlyn Whitaker Rhonda Jones' sister is also included in the movement. She is quoted as saying, and I quote, We learn these people's names. We speak to their families. These families are always on my mind. Like when I'm looking at stuff about Rhonda, I think about how so-and-so is dealing with this or so-and-so has posted a picture of their child today. Things like that. 
Like it's a part of our everyday life now, end quote. It's truly a beautiful thing to think about how someone can take the pain of their loss and their confusion and have the strength to put it towards something good like this. And I visited the Facebook group Shatter the Silence and there are so many posts about missing and murdered people and it really looks like it's created a community for people in the area to come together and support each other and spread the word easier. And the fact that while they're still looking for answers for their daughter, for their sister, they're also trying to help others. It's very admirable and I I can't imagine the strength it takes to do that. And she even says it herself, she's tired, but she's not going to stop. So finally, I want to include a post shared on the police department's Facebook by Nancy Bennett, Kristen Bennett's mother. And I quote, On April 18th, 2017 and June 3rd, 2017, the families of Kristen, a.k.a. Christina Bennett, Rhonda Jones, and Megan Oxendine received the devastating news of our daughter's deaths. It has been five very long years, and these cases are unresolved and open for investigation. I am sure I speak for other families, as we will not rest until justice is rightfully served concerning our daughter's deaths. We are speaking on behalf of the victims. We are speaking for the families. We are speaking for the lives that are lost. We are speaking to the public. Please help us pursue justice for Kristen, Rhonda, and Megan. If you have heard something, know something, or have seen something, please contact law enforcement. No information is too small or trivial. If you are fearful, call or contact law enforcement anonymously. If you prefer, you can make arrangements to meet with a plainclothes police officer of your preference in an unmarked vehicle in an undisclosed location of your choice. But please make that call. There are no socioeconomic boundaries to tragedy. Everyone deserves a safe place to live, work, attend school, raise your families, and worship. You can remain seated by maintaining your silence or stand up and make a difference. There are those in your community walking, quote-unquote, fancy-free that has no regard for human life and needs to be held accountable, someone that is culpable for heinous crimes. If you care, you will share what information you have concerning our daughter's deaths. This is not just a city matter. This is a community matter. There are many rumors circulating concerning these cases which are blatantly untrue and have been ruled out by investigative means. But please, if you have pertinent information, do the right thing and come forward. Kristen's daughter always had the dream. Her mother would come home and reunite as a family. Someone destroyed a little girl's dreams. Someone destroyed the expectation of not only Kristen's children, but the children of Rhonda and Megan. I understand there are those that are fearful, but think of the fear and horror our daughters faced with the reality their life was coming to an end. How can anyone sit back and do nothing to help? The Lumberton Police Department, State Bureau of Investigation, and Federal Bureau of Investigation have worked relentlessly investigating these cases, but still needs the public's support. There is still an FBI $40,000 reward offered for information pertaining to these cases. Special appreciation to the LPD and Robco Sheriff's Department for allowing my plea for public support to be posted on their Facebook page. End quote. And again, this was a quote from Nancy Bennett, Kristen Bennett's mother.
they don't even know the cause of death for these women. They were decomposed. Megan's body was said to be completely black. Her mother said that she didn't even get to give her a proper burial. She had to see, wait to see her when she was in her casket. She saw her casket. She did not get a funeral service. Now, I am including a picture of each one of these ladies on my Instagram and Facebook. One of the pictures that I will be including is a picture of Megan when she was being interviewed for CBS North Carolina. There's no information about what circumstances could have arisen. And this is, this is in their town where they live. Nancy Bennett makes a good point. Imagine, if you can, if you can handle it, I should say, the horror of their last moments. Depending on the level of decomposition, they could have been strangled or smothered and it could be harder to tell. I know that there's I know that there's a bone in the um, the neck that often gets broken, a very fragile bone when someone is strangled. But if I'm not mistaken, it can also not be broken and you still haven't been strangled. But I also believe suffocation could be a good a cause of death, a possible cause of death. We don't even, it took them over a year to get the autopsy results back. So we don't even know exactly how long they were gone for, how long they were dead. There's nothing. And five years on, and they still know nothing. The latest article was from April 27th of 2022. So this was, what, two months ago? And they know nothing. The families and the community have no information given to them, provided to them. And I do understand that there are, there are limitations to what officials can share because they want to hold information, some information back in case somebody incriminates themselves by giving information that only they would know. I understand that. But none? No information? You say you have evidence, but you're not sharing any of it? And I, I, get, I get that we still do have a long way to go, but also look how far we've come in investigative procedures and what we can do scientifically, extracting DNA or crime scene investigation, all those things. Science has come so far. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what all we can do at this point. But how is there nothing? Because these aren't cold cases. So how is there nothing? These cases aren't so far back that you couldn't find DNA or you don't have DNA on the victims or of the victims. And they mention, you know, uh, they mention Megan's blouse was under her body and her backpack was actually found nearby. I believe the backpack was found first. Rhonda was found in a trash can. Did they ever find her clothes? Then Kristen was found wrapped in a blanket or covered in a blanket. Was there any DNA besides her own on that blanket? Just makes me wonder how much effort was really put into this. The families on these interviews are clearly distraught. They look hopeless. Like, they feel hopeless because they're not getting information. They don't feel like the police care. I'm, I'm sitting here in silence and anger, and I'm trying to think of something that I can say to all of this. The likelihood of it being a serial killer with the vicinity of the bodies and all three being nude is clearly high, right? Though investigators reportedly treated them as unrelated astonishingly they reportedly treated them as unrelated 
how how even if it isn't a serial killer there's clearly a problem three women were found dead nude dumped in places that clearly showed there was no care for them there was no respect for their bodies a trash can inside an abandoned house in a tv cabinet in the bushes come on in some of the articles I found, there is information about several other women who have been murdered or have gone missing, a few before and a few since. They weren't, they weren't in relation to this being a possible serial killer, so I did not include those in this episode. I don't want to get too convoluted with too many people and really lose track of some of the personal information. The Facebook group Shatter the Silence is updated frequently and has posts about many missing and murdered people. Please look into it. If you have any information regarding the deaths of these women, please contact the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations at 800-334-3000. And that information will be posted in the show notes and on my Instagram and Facebook. For the individual I will be mentioning about the missing indigenous of Washington state today, unfortunately, there is no indication or information that I could find about gender, let alone a picture. So I will share what is found on the report. Dakota L. Beeston, 14 years old, last seen on April 4th, 2022. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of this child, please contact the Seattle Police Department at 206-625-5011. Again, that is Dakota L. Beeston. Check out my Instagram, at Little Known Crime, where I will be posting photos of Kristen Bennett, Rhonda Jones, Megan Oxendine, and an image showing the proximity of where their bodies were found, along with links and contact information for the police department. Also, please don't forget to rate, review, and share this podcast with friends and family. This is a small way that we can create a louder voice for the victims and the families. Furthermore, I will be adding the link to my Patreon where you can subscribe and earn merch throughout your first year. Check out the different tiers to see what best fits your budget and interests. If you are someone who has been affected by the missing and murdered Indigenous women, men, and children epidemic, are a survivor or family member and would like to tell your story on this podcast, please reach out to me at littleknowncrime at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Chandra Mel, and this is Little Known Crime.